When you're navigating the streets of New York City, you have to have your wits about you. Trains, cars, the masses of people, they all demand the most from all our senses. So how do you live in New York when one of your senses is gone? Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. On today's show, Blind in New York City. What's it like to ride the subway in the dark? We'll also find out about a training program for seeing eye dogs, hear how the Met is helping blind visitors get in touch with ancient Egypt, and meet a young blind musician trying to make a name for herself on the local scene. I sort of feel like I need to give back to music. I need to like pay my homage to music. I know that it can just help me grow and help me succeed. This is Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Thanks for listening. More than 30,000 New Yorkers are legally blind. Reporter Sarah Dalsimer follows one of them on his morning commute. Mike Cush stands on the R train as it rumbles through Brooklyn towards Manhattan. His backpack hangs on his shoulders, and his polo shirt is tucked into his khaki pants. He looks like any other morning commuter, except for one detail. He's holding a long white cane in his right hand, and if you look into his light blue eyes, he doesn't look back at you. Mike was born with a congenital eye disease that leads to blindness. I had fairly good vision when I was younger. I could do things, I could cycle, play sports, read up close, you know, get around without any problems. When I was probably around seven or eight, my vision just started getting worse. By the time he was 15, Mike's vision was almost completely gone. Now, at 30, all he can see is light and dark and shadowy shapes. Every weekday morning, Mike commutes from his home in Brooklyn into Lower Manhattan. He's helping to set up a call center called BlindLine, which will direct visually impaired people to service providers. It's sponsored by an organization called Visions. Mike starts his journey at Bay Ridge Avenue, where he boards the R train. His cane is his guide, and he grasps it firmly. He says he started learning to use it around 12 or 13, when he understood he would lose most of his sight. I never really learned to use it the quote-unquote proper way, just because I didn't like it. It was just something that I didn't really like using. I didn't feel comfortable with it at first. I understand that it was a necessity, but that didn't mean I had to like it. It's our stuff. We get off at 36th Street. He taps his cane lightly against the concrete in front of him. He crosses the platform to transfer to the D into Manhattan. He bumps up against a woman sitting on a bench. She looks up at him, shifting slightly to avoid his cane. Unfazed, Mike changes direction to move around the bench. He walks towards the edge of the platform. He uses his cane to feel for the bumpy yellow border that's meant to alert the visually impaired of the looming drop-off. On board the D, people glance in Mike's direction. He stands near the door and holds on to an overhead handrail. After the train crosses over the Manhattan Bridge, a woman offers Mike a seat, but he doesn't take it. No, thanks. Mike says he's sure people have all sorts of ideas about how he functions and gets around, and he imagines that most people assume that his life is much more difficult than it is. But he's been traveling on his own since his teens, so he's quite comfortable with the subway. At West 4th Street, Mike feels the train slow and gets off when the doors open. He taps his way a few feet to the stairs and heads up. He crosses over on the next level and heads towards the downtown C train. When he reaches the stairs leading up to the 8th Avenue line, he senses where he's going. 
Without using his cane to judge where the wall is, he turns left and up the stairs. He doesn't walk slowly or haltingly, but confidently and at a brisk clip. Waiting for the downtown train, he says that he does, in fact, see things, just not with his eyes, really. Because he had sight, he remembers what things look like. Right before our train pulls in, Mike says he can picture the subway cars. I didn't realize I was doing that until I kind of thought about it one day. But yeah, I, I definitely see things the way I remember them or the way, based on what I remember seeing, that's how I perceive them now. Of course, what he remembers, he says, are the graffiti cover cars of the late 80s. They were the last ones he knew before going blind. When we finally emerge into the light at Spring Street, Mike makes his way west towards the water. He taps his cane from one side to another, avoiding a truck in a driveway and a handful of people piled up at a corner. Okay, now, the last street we just crossed was Varick, and... Mike stops speaking when we cross the street so he can concentrate on where he's going. Usually, if I cross Varick when the light's about to change, when it turns green for me to cross, and I get up to Hudson, walking at a certain speed, I'll hit the corner here just as the light's changing. Mike says the sidewalk was a little more crowded today, so he had to slow down. We have to wait at the corner of Hudson. Like most blind people, Mike uses his hearing to get around. Walking down the street, he listens for traffic. If he hears moving cars, he can judge where the sidewalk might end. At corners, he'll pause and listen, sometimes for a full traffic cycle, to make sure he knows which way the cars are moving and how long he has to cross the street. Nancy Miller is the executive director of Visions and Mike's employer. She says it takes practice to be as independent as Mike. People have this mistaken belief that as soon as you lose your vision, you you sort of become like Superman. You, your hearing all of a sudden becomes acute. Um, all of a sudden, your sense of smell is wonderful. Well, it doesn't happen that way. You really have to be trained and you have to practice using your other senses. That training is provided by an orientation and mobility teacher who helps a student develop his or her other senses and learn to use tools, like Mike's cane, with the goal of becoming an independent traveler. Ruth Callen is an O&M teacher working at Helen Keller Services for the Blind in downtown Brooklyn. She says your hearing becomes much more important when you can't see. You pay much more attention to what you hear and start really tuning into it. It's just, it, it takes over. It's now doing double duty. You know, it's not just doing what it used to do, but it's supplying information that you got other ways when you had vision. Imagine closing your eyes before walking into an unfamiliar room. You don't automatically hear the clock on the wall, people's conversations, or the scraping of a chair as someone gets up to greet you. It's all just noise. Nancy Miller says blind people have to learn how to locate themselves in the room, using those types of sound, and pinpoint the place they want to walk to so they can get around. And that process takes time. Some people keep learning for years. Usually it's several months before somebody is able to develop their senses to be um, specific and acute enough to really enable them to use them in, like, traffic situations out in New York City or um, to be able to get around a room independently. 
Mike arrives at his office. He gets into the elevator to go up to the third floor. The elevator speaks, so the blind people who visit or work at Visions know when to get off and where the main door is located. No one else from the Blind Line Project is in when Mike drops his backpack onto the floor and folds up his cane. He settles in his chair and begins checking the phones, which weren't working yesterday. He dials different extensions, his fingers moving confidently across the numbers. He knows the key positions, so he doesn't fumble at all. After testing the phones, he checks his email. Again, his fingers fly across the keys. His computer has a program that reads what's on the screen out loud to him. It reads very quickly, but the speed can be adjusted. He says he's just learned to follow the faster pace, which is the auditory equivalent of quickly scanning a page with your eyes. With the screen reading program, Mike is able to use the Internet, Using the arrow and control keys, he navigates to Blindline's webpage and a listing of special services offered by the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. The first garden in the United States designed for the visually impaired offering. Mike says it's easy to adjust a workstation so a blind person can use it. The computer program on his machine can be installed on any system. He can work and function like any other employee. He just can't see the computer screen. But sitting on his desk... A cup of coffee in hand, Mike says he still thinks about what it would be like if he wasn't blind. You just kind of feel like something's missing, but you're not even sure what sometimes. It's not It's not very common, though. I'm not sitting here wondering, um, wow, um, it would be easier if I could see that. Or, I mean, I do, but not very often, and not as often as I used to. Mike just got a new job, which he'll be starting in the next couple of weeks. He's been hired as a caseworker at the Queen's Independent Living Center, a facility for people with disabilities. It will take about an hour and a half for him to get to work, meaning three hours a day of negotiating subway platforms and train transfers. That's reporter Sarah Dalsimer. As we just heard in Sarah's report, Mike Cush uses a cane to get around to New York City. But other blind New Yorkers rely on guide dogs. For the first time in its 50-year history, the organization Guiding Eyes for the Blind is giving New York City residents a chance to raise puppies for the program. I recently attended a puppy raising class in Manhattan. The idea behind the game is that you're teaching the puppy to keep track of you. How many times have you, with your own dog, or have you seen other people be always keeping track of their puppy? My name is Gretchen Pierce, and I'm a puppy program regional manager for Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Have you ever seen anybody walking down the street and you're wondering who's walking? The person, or is the person walking the dog? All right, so this is going to help with that because the puppy will be more responsible to keep track of you versus you responsible to keep track of the puppy. When you say, let's go, you're going to be, your puppy needs to be up and on your way. Guiding Eyes has been in existence for so long, and we haven't had the option of having puppies actually raised in New York City. But to have that option at this point in time, we're just thrilled to have this opportunity. Having the puppies be exposed to the noises, the sights, the sounds, already at this young age, they just grew up with been there, done that. It's not so overwhelming to them, potentially, as opposed to actually having to go out and find a lot of places to get them exposed to these things. They have it right when they walk out their front door. A lot of puppies, when you first get them, they will have to get up in the middle of the night, and they'll let you know, hey, hey, this is when they will bark, and this is the one and only time that I say, 
Now that barking, go ahead and respond to that one. My name's Ardeth Ashley, and I live in New York City. I think it's a combination of wanting to do some volunteer work and a love of animals. One of my concerns is if the puppy has to go out every hour, and I live on the 16th floor, and have to get dressed, get to the elevator, get down, go through the lobby and out to the curb, and then come back up once an hour. That's quite a commitment to make. But she said that that was temporary. Certainly your puppies may have an accident in the house. We're not going to try to plan it for them to get busy in the house, but if they have an accident in the house, it's not going to be a big deal. You're just going to clean it up, and you're going to move on. Um, but try to plan ahead so that you can avoid accidents because the more accidents that you have in the house, the more that the puppy's going to think this is a normal thing. This is where I go. My name is so Denise P. Gary from Brooklyn. Guiding Eyes for the Blind is a great foundation that mostly goes on volunteer, so it's a good place to help out. The most challenging part for me would be giving up the dog at the appropriate time. It's very difficult. I've owned dogs my whole life, and you get very attached. They do become a family member. So after doing all that raising and have to hand them over at 14 to 16 months, I would find the hardest part of the whole job. So these toys can all be left safely with your puppy. This is an example of a Nyla bone. My name is Kim Nichman. I live in Mazpeth, Queens. One of the things that was good I was able to bring two of my kids along tonight and they had a chance to briefly see a man with his graduate dog, with his partner. And so it's exciting to actually see that by raising a dog with a mission for life. All right, well, we will have part two of crate training next Monday. Your homework will be, we'll chat about your homework, but your homework will be to look up information on the web about puppy politeness poker as well as crate training. Okay? All right. Thanks again for coming, guys. We appreciate it, and we'll plan to see you next week. For the first time in its 50-year history, Guiding Eyes for the Blind is giving New York City residents the opportunity to raise Guiding Eyes puppies. For more information, check out guidingeyes.org. There are currently 70 New Yorkers getting around with a Guiding Eyes dog. Manhattan resident Gary Bergman is one of them. He says his dog, Vasco, has brought him a sense of joy and freedom. I asked Gary to share his experiences with me, but he wanted to do more than talk. Gary wanted me to feel the difference between having a dog and using a cane. So he blindfolded me and had me walk with both. You'll hear how that went after our chat. The first time you meet the animals, they want you to be in a room and quiet. Just be there, just sit, put your hand on them, let them smell you. The dogs are just looking for the trainers. They think you're just part of the training. It doesn't quite sink in at first that you are going to be their responsibility. I think you can almost feel it when you're going through the training together when that realization hits them to where there's kind of a pause and a look back and, oh, this is no longer training. Kind of a realization of this is what it's all about I can't let you bump into things. This is why I was taught all these things. I can't let you fall downstairs or trip over something that's in your way, whether it's a stick. It's really cute. They'll even walk you around puddles because they don't want you to get your feet wet. <laughs> uh, it's quite amazing. Take me back a step. How long have you had Vasco? I've had Vasco for th- three and a half months. Not very long at all. No. But so much has changed for you in that short period of time? Everything has changed. 
And I don't mean that as a, a, a simple statement because whether it's getting the mail, going to work, uh, going to the store. So prior to getting Vasco, how did you get around to this great big metropolis? Cane. Mm. I'm very independent, always have been. The cane was wonderful because I was literally in touch with the city, step by step, everywhere I went. The problem is, over time, it tends to burn you out. You have to stay so focused and be so sharp because, uh, particularly in this city, it's so dynamic that it changes block from block. So you really have to be sharp and on your toes. One day I came home from work and I hit a pole rather hard. Some scaffolding had gone up in an area that I was familiar with. Didn't know the scaffolding was there. The cane, of course, snuck around the pole. Uh, The odds are quite incredible, but it happens all the time. And I smacked it really hard, right in the center of my forehead. Wonderful big welt. Came home, and I was so, I don't know, more than physical pain, it's it's very much pride. Uh, Something you have no control over, even though you're being an independent citizen. Uh, Something that is still so physically visible to other people. Um, it's very hard to deal with, and I'm sitting down, and I think I actually put ice on it because it was a real goose egg. And my wife said, wow, you know what? This probably wouldn't happen to you if you had a dog. You've had Vasco now for three months. Have you come home with a bruise? Not one. Not one. Well, I shouldn't say that. One. But that wasn't his fault. Do you go anywhere now that you didn't go before you had Vasco? I love this city because you can go anywhere at any time, and in the past I had limited myself to certain routes because they were more comfortable, easier to do, uh, less distractions for me, um, less impedances on the trip, and now, man, I just love it. I'll take different routes home on the trains or different buses, go to areas that I'm not familiar with at all, just because I feel I can, not just that he's looking out for me, because I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but working together means that we can do it together. Something as simple as that kind of freedom can make all the difference in the world when it comes to being able to enjoy life. We're going to go out for a walk now with uh, Vasco? Yes. We're going to get you to walk, too. Gary has a seventh-floor co-op in Inwood. After our chat, he, Vasco, and I took the elevator down to the basement. That's where Gary blindfolded me and made me feel the difference between having a dog and using a cane. Gary made me use the cane first. My instructions? Find my way to the end of the hall where Gary and Vasco would be waiting. I have to admit it, it took me a while as I tapped from side to side trying to find my way without hitting anything. So I'm just making my way down the hall using the cane to feel for whatever I'm feeling for as I try to find Gary. Now I I feel like I moved to more of an open area because I don't feel a wall to the right of me anymore, which I felt before. Is it a direct wall that I'm going to hit? I guess I shouldn't even ask you, and I'm not going to ask you. Towards your right, at the end, is a door. 
Okay, I, f I feel the door. Yes, yes. And here we go, because now I am at a dead end. So I'm going. Open the door. Set yourself free, George. The door is on my right. After making my way down the hall using a cane, it was back to square one. This time I had to make my way down the hall with Vasco as my guide. Okay, Vasco forward. Okay, it's so interesting to have to have that trust because that's all I'm doing right now is trusting him that I'm not going to bump into anything. There you go. Wow. Boy, that was about eight seconds. Yes, uh, compared to what it took before. But it really is the trust, Gary, because I, I, and it, I just felt that I needed to stop and say, you know what, don't hold back, just trust Vasco. Because initially I felt myself holding back because I didn't know what to expect. But once I let myself trust him, then it got a whole lot easier. And the thing, the reason I wanted to also do it in this hallway is because there are a couple, not bends, but there are, uh, the hallway comes in on this end instead of the other end. There are two ramps, a uh, small little incline and small little decline. So there are things happening even in this tiny little simple space. Right. And uh, you felt the, pull felt the pull on the shoulder. Yeah. Uh, he's strong. You know, if you do the math, uh, he's 73 pounds, um, that's, that's like me walking around with someone who's 750 pounds, right? He is an athlete. He will take you where you need to go. <laughs> so through commands and through trust, he's going to follow your lead as you follow his lead. That's the beautiful dance, truly. That's what makes the magic. Gary Bergman and his guide dog Vasco live in Upper Manhattan. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Most museums have do-not-touch policies, but many have found ways to bend the rules to help blind and visually impaired visitors appreciate art. I talked with the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Deborah Jaffe. We're in the Great Hall at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I wanted to stop here because this piece is on our Egyptian touch tour. It's the Sphinx of Hatshepsut, and currently it's not available because it's been moved into the Great Hall and it has kind of a barrier around it, but it's one of the best pieces we have and we'll have it again available very shortly. Now we're in the Temple of Dendur, um, a huge space that houses the Egyptian temple and around it is water that's meant to be the Nile River. And there are other sculptures in this room. Actually, three of them are on the touch tour. This sculpture of Sakmet, who's the goddess of war, chaos, and pestilence. People can feel different details. People love her feet and her toenails. As you said earlier, we can just look at this and we can see it full-blown. Mm -hmm. But then when you really have to describe it, I would imagine that takes a certain kind of individual to be able to do that. Yeah. We work with a kind of a small pool of contractual educators who are trained in doing this, have been doing it for years. You help the blind see the paintings here. A lot of the people who come for those tours are people who weren't necessarily born blind, but people, maybe older people, who have lost their sight or are losing their sight and were always museum goers, loved art, and they want to continue that in their lives. Art is, you know, a part of our culture, and just because you can't see it or can't see it so well doesn't mean you don't want to know about it and learn more about it. Deborah Jaffe is an associate museum educator at the Met. While the Met's program helps the blind enjoy fine art, 
many such New Yorkers are creating great works of their own. But what's it take to make it in the city's perilous music industry when you're also visually impaired? Melissa Ofoha, she performs as Lachi, is a young musician who recently moved to the city trying to make a name for herself. My name is Melissa Lachi Ofoha. I have been in New York since December 2005. I was born uh, visually impaired. Something about the words you use. I have a disease called coloboma. My retina didn't fully develop. And so basically what that does is one of my eyes have a big hole in it where I can't see anything. And I also have very low visual acuity. I'm not really a well-spoken person, but when it comes to music, I just, I feel like I can convey just regular normal things I'm trying to say um, a lot better. Basically, when I was younger, I didn't say much. I didn't really speak, actually, until like the age of three. And I didn't, I didn't do a lot. My mother would place me on the couch at like, you know, age four, go to work, come back, and I would still just be sitting in that exact same position. So when she got me that little eight-note keyboard, I opened up a lot more. Like, it helped me learn to speak. Playing music helped me learn to read. I don't know. It just, it's always been so close to me, music. And I sort of feel like I need to give back to music. I need to, like, pay my homage to music. And that's why I'm just, I'm always on the keyboard. Because if it can help me develop at age four, I know that it can just help me grow and help me succeed. Mm. Oh, God. The music business in New York is um, pretty cutthroat. I mean, for anyone, regardless of whether you're visually impaired or not, you know, it's hard to get gigs. It's hard to do this. But basically, it all boils down to networking, I've found, because that's the only way anyone will listen to you is if you already know someone else that they know. So I've definitely used that to my advantage to build a community of people that I can pull from if I need to do this or if I need to do that. Most people pretty much expect blind musicians to play jazz, which I do. <laughs> People just have this thing where it's like, well, if they're blind and they do music, they must be Stevie Wonder. Blind musicians are very versatile. I, I personally think that most of the blind musicians I've met, though a lot of them do do jazz, they're very open to doing other things just because they have that ear and they're able to, to do pretty much anything. Also, another stereotype is that blind musicians are able to do everything by ear, which for the most part is true, but that's not true for all blind musicians. Some of them play music, but they actually don't play by ear. They have, they have to read music, and blind musicians do read music. <laughs> There's, you know, braille music for the blind, and a lot of them actually use braille music to read music as opposed to playing by ear. I'm a synesthete. Basically, like, if I play a note, every note has a color that was kind of orangey. And uh, every color has a tone and every number has a color and every it's all like weird connections that I have in my head that I, I see physically as I play the music. It's that's that's kind of a dirty like, you know, this is clean. You know, it's kind of it's a tan sort of clean. I don't know. It's kind of got like a it's lower notes. So it's got like a darker hue and it's kind of tan and it, it's kind of like the wood grains on a door. You know what I mean? And I don't know why, it's just because it's so straight, I don't know. And, um, but something like this, 
It's around the same area of notes, so it's still sort of brown, but it's got sort of a high note in there, giving it a greenish hue to it. And when things are moving around, I, you know, I sort of see the trickling of the, the different notes, and these, these blue notes up here, I don't know, they kind of remind me of rain, water, and um, this down here, these, this note down here is sort of traveling and it kind of reminds me of like a boat sailing across the water, so it's, you know, you know. <laughs> it's really weird. Sometimes it just comes to me a lot of times. Like, I'll just start playing and it'll just, it'll just come. Sometimes I'll just be playing around with different notes and I'll be like, wow, that sounds really nice. And then I'll, um... I'll write like a, a, a line and then just have it on the back burner and then write something else that's really nice and be like, you know, these two kind of go together. <laughs> I would not write the same songs if I weren't visually impaired because a lot of my, I mean, first of all, a lot of my life experiences have come from the fact that I am and like the, who I am now has come from the fact that I'm visually impaired. All the struggles I've had to go through, like it being harder to make friends, um, that's where a lot of my personality has come from and that's why a lot of my songs are the way they are just because of who I have become. Darkened by the blinding light The leaves they fall Harkened by the That's Melissa Ofoha, or Lachi. You can find more of her music as well as information on her upcoming concerts at ulachi.com. And that brings us to the end of this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can find past shows and information on our weekly podcast, all at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan, as well as to Rachel Lushinsky. I'm George Borarki. Have a great weekend.